Okay, this morning I'm going to read to us from 1 Peter 4, the first 11 verses. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May God add blessing to his word. Good morning, and Merry Christmas. Quite the Christmas passage today, hey? I will tell you why this is a good Christmas passage. Um, we serve a God who is not far away. When Jesus came, Emmanuel, God with us, that was incredible. A God far away in dealing with sinful humans, in dealing with me, would have to obliterate me. That's what a far away God does. You are sinful, done, gone. But a close to us God, a God who takes on flesh, becomes human, experiences all of our temptations and doesn't sin, a God who sacrifices himself because I couldn't. That's the Christmas message. God near us. Let's pray. We should start there. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thank you <laughs> that you are loving that in your power in your majesty in your might in your holiness in all of your incredible attributes you are loving and we need your love and your mercy we can't muster salvation on our own <laughs> we can't even muster love and mercy on our own. We need 
a God that comes near. I am so grateful that you have revealed yourself, that you are showing us the truth of who you are through Scripture, and that we can trust in your faithfulness. Lord, in this moment, uh, wake us up. Ignite us. Because we wish to serve you and we long to be with you. Amen. So earlier this week, I candidly asked a friend if this stuff from First Peter is getting a little bit too repetitive. Suffering, 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 persecution, suffering. And needing to be put in my place, he said, well, actually, that's maybe what we need right now. That's maybe what you and I need to hear more than anything. And I actually felt ashamed of my question. Of course, God's word from Peter are most needed in times such as these. The book of Revelation repeatedly contends that those who overcome in the Lord, those who persevere in obeying Christ, only those will receive eternal life with the Lord. I've never been tested. My resolve at a life or death level has never been tried. And I bet you yours hasn't either. But now is the time to make ready. Our world, our country even, is looking pretty ugly. And it's getting worse. And if you're anything like me and you come to a topic or a virtue and you say, I've, I've got this, I've heard this before, that needs to be a wake-up. Looking at the, the repetition rather of 1 Peter was a wake-up for me this week. Because repetition in the Bible means it's important. Make ready now. Train yourselves in godliness now. Because in the times of testing, it very well could be too late. So, we're going to start with 1 Peter uh, 4, 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. No longer live for human passions, but for the will of God. Live no longer for your own will, but for the will of God. Now, how can you do that? Why would you do that? Quite, quite simply, the unrepentant can't, nor do they want to. But the Christian can, and does want to. The fall of humanity was over this. Adam and Eve, you and I similarly, before regeneration, sought our own will first. We sought our will over God's will. And on a cosmic scale, that was disastrous. On a relational level, spiritual level, intellectual level, which other, any way that you evaluate existence, 
following our own will was and is devastating. But if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. If you are a Christian, you are a new creation. You are changed. And you are changing to love and desire to desire the things and kingdom of God. The impossible has come about. You can live for someone other than yourself. Created to live for God, what was broken by sin has been made new in Christ's death and resurrection. 1 Peter 4, 1, beginning, A. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So in submission to the will of the Father, Christ suffered in the flesh. Therefore you and I can endure likewise. Luke 6.40 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Look what happens to this when we cross-reference it. That means, like, look at the parallels in the Bible. Matthew 10, 24, 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, the servant like his master. And from John 15, verses 18 to 20. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. But listen to this. This is why he says that. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I always thought it was about learning, training, knowing stuff, wisdom. Uh, But it's about being like Jesus in sacrifice, suffering. Not only should you and I look like our master, Jesus Christ, but the world will treat us as if we do. So arm yourselves, and that's military language, with the same way of thinking. Say, I choose to obey the will of the Father. Not my will, right? But yours. Because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And this statement should surprise you. It's strange, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If it were only that easy, having suffered, we would no longer sin. Wouldn't you like that? But that is a ripe piece of blasphemy. That in our own suffering, we could be purified from sin. No doubt many have read this and inflicted penance upon themselves or self-mortification. They've hurt themselves to atone for sin. But we can't do that. It's totally and only Christ's work on the cross that crushes sin. Instead, what this verse is saying is that the person who chooses to suffer persecution 
has already shown that they would rather suffer than to sin. They would rather lose regard, be ostracized, be hurt or even killed, rather than denying Christ and avoiding pain. They have already shown that they would desire God's will above their own. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You've already sinned enough. Your time for sinning has been quite sufficient, Peter says, move on. And again, Peter's writing to new believers, Gentiles, who used to participate in all this same carousing and hedonism as their friends, whether it was, whether it was erotic or drunkenness or idolatry. Verse 4 and 5, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, they make fun of you, slander you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter has such a bang-on appraisal of the human condition. Others are surprised when you don't join them in their abandon. In junior high, I was walking home one day talking to God, or rather he was talking to me, and I felt convicted to stop using bad language. Here's my little story. Thankfully, it was just that sudden, and I stopped. But since that day, I've had many people ask why I don't swear. When we cease to participate in worldly things, others feel judged and angry. Think of what I just read from John. They will hate you. Peter says they will malign you, but don't worry because all will have to give an account to the righteous judge of the quick and the dead. Verse 6. Here's a fun one. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So you have to ask yourselves, was the good news of Christ preached to the dead? Does this verse somehow relate to 1 Peter 3:18 and 19 from a few weeks ago? For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And these are hard verses. But categorically, they are not related. The answer is no. These two verses are not tied together Though the language is similar, 3.19 is about Christ proclaiming his victory over all rebellion, even the powerful spirits who disobeyed God before the flood. But this verse, 1 Peter 4.6, in its context, is not about preaching to the dead, but that the gospel that was preached, the gospel was preached to some who are now dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. And your NIV Bibles make that addition for clarity. Here's the context. The whole book of Peter 
indeed the whole Bible, is about God's faithfulness and therefore trusting your life to God, persevering in Christ, not sinning, not choosing the easy road even though it might cost you your life. So, the, so this, most certainly, is not about how somebody somehow preached to the dead, making it some sort of universalist salvation message that your actions in this life don't matter. There's a second chance. You can hear and accept Christ's lordship in the next life. That is not what this is saying. Instead, Peter is answering the burning question. We know people who have trusted in Christ and have died anyway, just like everyone else. What's the point? Why would we suffer? Why would we participate in such sacrifice? And his answer is rest, rest assured. Our God who sees all will judge the wicked and the righteous, condemning those who deny Christ and commending those who proclaim him. So press on. Physical death is not the last word for the believer. This life is only a prelude to the abundant life after death. Or by contrast, the eternal punishment of hell for the unregenerate. Speaking of life after death, verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So if the end is nigh, we might expect this to be a call from Peter to some sort of extraordinary behavior. That something unusual is demanded in light of the imminent end. But Peter kind of says the opposite, doesn't he? Instead, he exhorts his readers to pursue what amounts to the most ordinary behavior and virtue for the Christian. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, rather than thinking in terms of kings and kingdoms, time and history, Peter is speaking in terms of redemptive history. The end of all things is at hand comes from the perspective that all the previous chapters, the story of history, now point to one last event, Christ's return. Briefly, redemptive history looks like this, and this is the Bible in a nutshell. There's creation, the fall, the call of Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, the kingdom of Israel, the exile in Babylon, and then the return the birth of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to establish the church. Accordingly, we are presently in the church age, same as Peter was when he wrote this letter, and for the last 2,000 years, the end of all things has been at hand. Because the end is near, he says, be controlled. Be sober-minded so that you might pray well, so that you might speak to God and listen to him in deep and consistent communion 
Why? So that you will know his will and obey it. What is his will? Peter has three offerings for this. Love one another. Show hospitality. Use your gifts to serve one another. So basically, the last four verses in this passage just say, love your fellow Christian that God may be glorified. Legend has it that when asked what he would do if he knew the end of the world was to be today, the great reformer of the Christian faith, Martin Luther, said he would plant a tree and pay his taxes. This might be just a legend. But the idea is that he was already living each day as if it were his last. And the sentiment fits with Peter's call to remain steady. History is overcrowded with people and spiritual movements that have lost their minds believing they knew when Christ was coming. Shady preachers have bought private jets on the dime of congregants and TV watchers duped into sending him cash before the end of ends. Such craziness has caused divorces and suicides and jokes about rapture insurance for left-behind pets and so much worse. All of this is in dead contrast to the righteous call of God to remain clear-headed, sober-minded, temperate, and prayerful. And I wish I would have read this at the beginning of our pandemic. Be clear-minded, sober, temperate, and prayerful. Because the end is near. Verse 8. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Earnestly is such a good word. Love with sincerity. Make sure your love is genuine and deep. And you're going to need prayer for that. Love one another the way Christ showed love. For love covers a multitude of sins, which in no way means love covers a multitude of sins. Only blood covers sin. Only Christ's atoning blood can cover sin. You can't suffer enough to make up for your rebellion, and you can't love or be good enough either. Love covers a multitude of sins is a colloquialism. It's a proverb. It means genuine love looks past grievances. The word altruism means believing the best when we have questions about somebody's words or deeds. But love goes beyond altruism. Love forgives. Love endures. Keeps no record of wrong. Loves despite being wronged. And there's a lovely bit of poetry in 1 Corinthians 13 about all that. Angry people remember lists of wrongs. They are suspicious. They find faults and sinister motives where there aren't any. Not so the one who loves. Peter's giving us words for community keeping. For little things, love lets minor things go. It forbears. And for the bigger things, love tells the truth. 
and it calls others to repentance and gently addresses sin that we see in one another. Because the end is near, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. God loves a cheerful giver, right? It's 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Hospitality is a command. And so in our very present context, 2022, do we obey God or man? Show hospitality. Hospitality nowadays means entertaining, which is a terrible misreading of the term where entertaining guests is showing people your home and what you can do with sauces and baking. The focus is on self. Biblically, however, hospitality means caring for others, inviting others to enter your life so that you can minister. It is God-focused. By definition, one is concerned with putting on a show, get it, entertaining, and the other is concerned with putting on Christ, living out the gospel. If your house is a mess, invite someone over. Invite someone in. No meal planned or even possible? Make toast. Make some tea. Melt some snow so that you have some water. The focus is on sharing life because the end of all things is at hand. In Peter's day, hospitality actually meant two things. It meant life and truth. Let me tell you what I mean. First, without hospitality, you would die. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Or the travesty of the Christ child born in a barn. There were few, if any, hotels and restaurants, and if there were... To carry the kind of cash needed meant you'd get robbed. So if you traveled, you would need an open home for rest, for protection, and for sustenance. The other part, it meant gospel spread. Hospitality meant proclamation. It meant that the disciples of Christ could have a place to stay as they traveled and as they taught. The homes of fellow Christians all over the known world became the network of safe and effective mission. So even now, our hospitality should be about encouraging each other with the gospel and entering into each other's lives. It's still about life. It's still about truth. Sharing life. Gospel truth. Verse 10 says, And each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as stewards of various grace, varied grace. Serve each other. Use what you have to care for and to uplift. Be good stewards of the gifts that God has given you. All that you have physically and spiritually is from God. Use it to minister to each other. And then Peter breaks this down even further by specifically talking about two categories of spiritual gifts, speaking and serving, word and deed. Again, because the end is near, verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, 
whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Remember that the righteous are God-dependent. So if you speak, set out to speak the very words of God. If you speak, be careful not to spout off your own wisdom. Instead, encourage one another with God's word, with the gospel. Why waste words beyond that? And if you serve, serve in the strength of God. Don't lift heavy things by yourself. Don't try to accomplish your tasks and ministries outside of God's power. Why hurt your back? God will supply all the words and all the abilities that you need for his purposes. Once again, verse 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And Peter ends with, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This passage teaches us to make ready, to be prepared. Train yourselves in righteousness now. Practice the things of righteousness now. When we live in relative ease, we get lazy. We let our guard down. We sleep. But the end is near. Christ is coming. Your faith will be tested. Prepare now so that you can overcome fire and trial. Christian, you were created for the glory of God. You have been gifted for the glory of God. You'll see a pattern here. If you suffer, it's for the glory of God. If you prosper, use it for the glory of God. The end of all things is at hand, which is for the glory of God. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.